I'll be reading from Romans 12, 1 through 3. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment. In accordance with faith, God has distributed you. Didn't he give us a good therefore? Amen? Um, I need to let you know about something. And, and by the way, let me just kind of... Uh, the preamble to this statement is, if you feel like this is catching you a little bit short and you're not heard about it enough, uh, please do not blame the elders. I was supposed to bring this up last Sunday, and just because of all the things that were, were involved in the week prior to it, I failed to do it. So this is my fault. Um, back nearly 12 years ago now, when I first came to this church, we participated in a couple of surveys called Natural Church Development. It's a really wonderful kind of independent look at the church and showing you where your strengths and your challenges are and who you are as a church body. We have not done that for nearly 10 years now. And what's really wonderful is the folks at the Cybert Institute at ACU have taken what was a general health assessment and made it very specific to churches of Christ. If you were here all those years ago, you remember some of the language was weird. What does this mean? What does that mean? This will not be that way. We're going to be participating in a process of doing a church health assessment. I just need you to know a few things about that. Next slide real quick. First of all, the elders really do want to hear from you. And before you object too much, I want to be sure and say this. I appreciate how much our elders spend time calling you on the phone. Some of you are in the habit, if a phone call comes up and you don't know the number, you're not going to answer it. You need to be sure all the elders of our church's numbers are in your phone because they're trying to call you and trying to hear from you. And you say, well, if they want to know what I'm thinking, why don't they just talk to me? And the answer is, they are, first of all. If you're not getting contacted, I would say to you that, that somebody's not picking up the phone because I know that they're contact, trying to contact everybody. And if you don't feel like you've been contacted, please call one of our elders and say, nobody's talked to me in a while, I want to be talked to. So they would be open to that, no matter who the elder is. I, I'm just hearing, I want to talk to the elder and I haven't been talked to in a while. And I'm sure they'll say, oh, well, it's wonderful to hear from you. But what the survey does is gives us a much broader perspective. Does that make sense? Even if you spent 30 minutes with an elder at your doorstep, face-to-face, -face, in your living room or on the phone, you're probably not going to cover the breadth of subject that this assessment is going to ask for. Uh, be sure you understand that it has been thoroughly scientifically vetted. It is a very valid survey, so I don't want you to poke holes at the survey. It is also, and again, now we'll step back 12 years ago, and if some of you remember that, I made you come into a room and get a piece of paper and a pencil, and you had to sit there and all those kinds of things. I think I had coffee to make it a little less painless, painful, but at uh, any rate, this will come to you online. You're going to be getting an email from the church that has the survey connected to it. You will also likely get at least one text that has a, a, a a link that will let you connect to the survey. So we want everyone's feedback, and we would appreciate you taking the time to do that. 
The survey should be, and it's possible that the survey will be in your inbox or in your, on your phone as soon as the end of this week. We, uh, ACU has to do some personalization of it before they send it out to you and get it ready to receive your answers. But please know that before the month of October is over, on Sunday the 31st, we're going to be presenting it to you. And anybody that wants to hear the results of that, in fact, uh, Carson Reed, who is the head of the Cyber Institute at ACU, will be with us this, that weekend to kind of read that with us and walk through it with us. The elders have recognized that the last time we really did some uh, setting goals and visioning has been an extended period of time now, and they are wanting to refresh that sense of, and make no mistakes, has our mission changed? Absolutely not. We turn to the Bible and we know we're supposed to be Jesus' people. As Craig has pointed out, we're supposed to be living into the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And we're supposed to be sharing that gospel wherever we go. We are the kingdom of God. That mission doesn't ever change. But how we see ourselves fitting in that uniquely can change, and particularly when we talk about our goals for the next five years. Uh, Joe, how long have you been gone now? Five years. And I know that it was two years before we left that we set the last set of, of specific goals for this church. Church, that is too long. Somebody say amen. And so you're going to help us in that process, and we appreciate it. Very, very much. I want you to open to Romans chapter 12 with me, if you would. Uh, again, we're going to be spending some time. In fact, uh, uh, all fall, we're going to be spending in 12 through 16. So my hope is, as I challenged you last week, I hope you've read through that because it'll make more sense to you if you're reading along with me. And so I want to encourage you to do that. It is amazing how often the things that we see are not self-interpreted. When we look at them, they don't tell us what they are. Instead, they are, are a product of our perception. So, for instance, if you were in France or England and you saw these rocks piled up, you might say, oh, that's part of an old rock fence. They have fields divided where they've pulled the stones out literally over centuries and built these fences around their fields. And you might say, well, there's one that's kind of broken down a little bit. If you were in America and you were driving through the country and you saw a pile of rocks like that, what you would think of is, man, that farmer has been pulling rocks out of his field and he's got them all stacked up in one place. He wants to be sure that that's the case. However, if you're Jesus, or if you're a person of, particularly of Jewish descent, and you saw a pile of rocks like this, you would think something very different than somebody's just clearing out their field. You would say... There's an altar. I wonder what was sacrificed there. And again, when an altar was built, and you read that throughout the Old Testament, very often, you know, Abraham came to this place, Jacob came to that place, they came, Samuel was in this place, and they built an altar. Guess what? Once that altar is built, you don't take it down because it's supposed to remind you that a relationship with God was built there. Now, it is true, and you're right, I stand accused. If you look at the instructions for the temple, and particularly the second temple it was, as it was reconstructed, um, they cut stones and made a real formal place. It was also very, very, very large. But the original instructions for an altar were that they, it would be made of uncut stones. That is to say, the stones that you will be, use will be the stones that God has made. And it's going to be a God place. 
And I would say that I think at some level there's this a little bit of this idea of you're going to have to work a little harder to put an uncut stone altar together to stack the stones than if you just go and, again, I can drive down the road here and buy limestone and stack it up in two seconds. It is heavy, by the way, but nonetheless, you and I can do it together and it's done. Stacking stones that are uncut takes work and it's never perfect. So in other words, you can't think of what, look what I did in this beautiful ornament almost. Instead it is, here's a place where God is meeting me. and It really has very little to do with me. We're continuing with Paul. As Paul transitions from just, again, those first 11 chapters of Romans, some of, some of the most beautiful ways that the gospel is expressed in the entire Bible, other than I would have to say, never ever replace the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, with Paul's analysis of what goes on. Always read the original source material, amen? But Paul still says it in such a way that it captures us. And we see ourselves being drawn into the words that he has there. But really, as chapter 12 opens, as we emphasized last week, and I'm going to kind of, kind of tent, continue to point you towards, we celebrated God's good news in chapters 1 through 11, and now we are going to be asked. Paul pleads with us. Paul urges us to live in response to that gospel. Amen? Paul is saying there is a way that you're going to live and it is either going to tell the gospel well or the way that you live. And by the way, not just you individually, but you corporately is going to either tell the gospel well or it will tell the gospel poorly. Your life will either reflect and boy... Craig and I did not work on this together, but I could not have asked for a more powerful way of presenting what it is that we foundationally see in the gospel. And Paul says, your life, if you've heard anything good, if in the first 11 chapters you said, amen, or you hit thumbs up on the video, if you did any of that, then Paul says, there's a way that I want you to live and it needs to start with these basic premises. There are, I believe, three images that Paul kind of initially introduces us to. We've all enjoyed playing with Play-Doh, haven't we? You remember? And, and by the way, I'm old, right? Somebody says? Oh, come on. Y'all. <laughs> I'm old. And I played with Play-Doh when I was a child. And I happen to know that people before me played with Play-Doh. And we're still, by the way, playing with Play-Doh. Although I have a feeling it doesn't taste near as good now as it used to taste. I think probably at some point people were eating too much Play-Doh. And somebody said, you need to make that taste worse so they don't eat it anymore. Was that too much of a confession? Too much information? But bottom line is we love shaping it and doing all those things with it, but it always comes, the kit, if you get the kit and not just the things, it always comes with some molds, right? And the mold is not used for you to gently kind of put a few pieces of Play-Doh in. You take a big glob of Play-Doh and you mash it up and you get it nice and round and then you put it in the mold and then what do you do? You press, you smash, you get it in there. In fact, my biggest complaint about the newfangled Play-Doh is it doesn't come out of the mold anymore. It just kind of, and you're like, well, that doesn't work. But when that's done, we recognize some language that Paul wants to give to us. 
Paul calls us first to step out of being conformed to the world's mold. Now, it's kind of interesting. That same word will be used by Paul in other places to call us to be conformed to the gospel, right? Let our lives be a reflection of. And there's a very powerful winch in which that wording of it takes us all the way back to the creation story where God says he makes us in his own image. He stamps us. He puts us in a mold that says, this is the God stuff, right? But here Paul says, and I think the power of this is, don't be pressed into the world's mold. God wants more for you than that. God doesn't want you to let your life be this, this, this victimization in reality of being pressed into what the world wants you to be. You need to understand that some, to some extent there's a, there's a specific perspective here for folks who live in Rome. In fact, folks who live all over the Roman world, but particularly if you live in Rome, because what goes on in Rome is a constant status game. It is a constant comparison. What, where are you from, and where does that rank on the hierarchy of, Roman, of places that Rome has conquered in reality? To be from Greek descent was much, much better than to be from Syrian ascent or, or from Egypt or someplace like that. But there's more than that. You've heard Paul's comparisons before. Are you a free man or are you a slave? Are you someone who works in a house as a servant or are you the owner of the house? Are you a merchant? Are you, and here comes the big one, are you a Roman citizen? You can remember Paul's story from the book of Acts when he's about to be killed and he says, wait a minute, I don't think you want to go killing a Roman citizen. He played a trump card. Now let's be sure and say, Paul is, is ready for his life to be poured out. Amen? And that comes up over and over again. But he recognized an opportunity for the gospel and so he said, wait a minute, hold on. You don't have the right to do that to me because I'm a Roman citizen. And in Rome, this was one of the biggest trump cards you could play. But it wasn't just about where you came from, whether you were a citizen or not. It was always about how you could get one notch up on somebody else. How you could ingratiate yourself to a more powerful person. How as a powerful person you ingratiated yourself, you gave your benevolence to someone so that you could get a little bit further ahead. Of course, always striving for to be the more political a senator, a town council person, someone who had great status. And when I got all that right, I would have life together. And be sure you understand, it did not matter in their heart of hearts how many people they stepped on to get to that place of status. It didn't matter how many lives they ruined. I'm going to try to get there. It didn't matter how many people I stabbed in the back. It didn't matter how many bribes I took. It didn't matter how many people's businesses failed or families were destroyed. I'm looking to get there. And when Paul says, don't be conformed by that, I want you to hear the gospel proclamation. The gospel proclamation is that Jesus said, I have the greatest status in the world. I am God incarnate, and I choose to let myself be put on a cross. And I want you to see the antithesis to what was the norm in Rome and what Jesus did. 
Don't be conformed to the world. And what's the opposite? What's the second image that we're coming up with? Paul says, instead of being conformed to the world, I want, I love that other verb, calls us to be transformed. And I want you to see how different it is between being pressed into a mold of conformity and being transformed into a new life that you are. God will use, and the prophets will often use, the language of the potter and the clay for who we are. And we, we absolutely cannot resist, or it is, by the way, we resist, but it, it produces bad outcomes. But when God can mold us into who he wants us to be, but when you recognize that potter's function, it is never about how ultimate, how I can just push my will into what's on the wheel, on the wheel. It is about working with what's on the wheel and letting it become and lifting it up more and more into what you want it to be. But it's, and again, I realize if you're a potter, you know your hand has to be strong and firm. But it is not a coercive act. It is a gentle act, and it's a slow act. Now, take us to the word transformation. It is an invitation. It, is an, it can't be sucked out of you. It can't, it's not something you can be pushed through. It is something that only God can accomplish, but you get to be a partner with him in it. It is a transformative process. And by the way, what comes out on the other end doesn't really have much to do with where you started. It's still the same basic elements if I'm conformed to a mold, isn't it? I'm still sort of got that same stuff. But in the transformation process, what began and what is at the end are really nearly not even similar to each other. Uh, we got to watch Aubrey put Christ on in baptism, and she talked, we used that language of an old self is dying and a new one is being born. And you say, well, wait a minute, she kind of looked the same when she came out. She was wet, yes, I got that, but she looked the same. But in reality, when we, when we don't look at her with earthly eyes, but we look at her with heavenly eyes, this is a new creation, Amen. Invitation is don't let yourself be abused and victimized by the world and squeezed into what, because it is counter to what God intends for you to be. The invitation is to join with God and become a partner with Him, to invite the Spirit to come into you to be transformed. And Paul will use a particular phrase and specifically points to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Say it with me, by the renewing of your mind. Now, let's be sure and say, as, as modern world people, or actually technically postmodern world people, 21st century people, we put the mind kind of on its own little shelf and say, that thing up there, and that's what I get smart with and all that kind of stuff, and sometimes that's not exactly the same as what's going on inside my body. I want to particularly refer you to the way Paul uses in Philippians chapter 2. I'm not going to cite it, and I don't necessarily want you to turn to it. I want you to do that this week as you kind of investigate it. What is this idea of how does God want to change me by the renewing of my mind? He says, if you have the same mind as Christ, and then he goes on to tell that sing, that beautiful hymn about God, Jesus, who didn't desire to stay with God, but chose to come to earth and gave his life, lived so humbly, gave his life on a cross. 
The idea here with that use of that word mind is not just the idea of the way we think, but it is a comprehensive sense of who we are. And particularly, I think Paul minds away here at the idea that you can get involved in the stuff of the flesh in the world, but God wants you involved in the stuff of the Spirit. Amen? And to a certain extent, that mind and spirit connection is there. Be renewed in who you are at your very core. And God says, that's always the way God, God's going to do it. God is going to renew the core. He's going to make something new inside of you. And what he wants is for your whole life to be this expansion of what's in the core that it flows more and more out of you. And so, transformed by the renewing of who you are from the very core piece of you, which God has redeemed through Christ in the waters of baptism. Amen? And let it seep out. Let that which you want to be your core and that God has made your core become more of who you are in every dimension, in everything that you can be. So is isn't just the idea of transforming the way you're thinking, although that's part of it, but it is so much bigger than that. In the same way that Jesus didn't think his way to earth and think his way to the cross and think his way to a resurrection, Jesus lived his way every step of the way. Dirty shoes, dirty clothes, sweat and blood, hands on a cross. And where Paul wants this process to start, don't be conformed, don't be pushed into the world's mold. Instead, be, let God partner with you in a transformation process that goes on that starts in a place that he says, present yourselves as living sacrifices. It's a startling statement. It isn't startling to us because we've become, we've read the Bible long enough to be very sort of familiar with the sacrificial language. But it was intended to be startling. In the same way that we can read our Old Testament, read the book of Genesis along and everything's going well. Called Abraham, Sarah can't have a baby. Oh, she has a baby. But then we turn that page, right? And God says, sacrifice your one son. And it's not a theoretic thing because we take a knife and we take wood and we put together a stack of stones. And the text will go so far as to say he raised, and it startles you. If it doesn't startle you, then your heart is not invested in the text. It's hard for us to hear and hard for us to understand. And when Paul says, present your bodies as living sacrifices... We go from this kind of feel-good idea of Christianity. Oh, I think loving people would be just wonderful. And I think I'll smile a little more and be a little more joyful. And isn't heaven wonderful? Somebody say, amen, isn't heaven wonderful? And then he says, by the way, the key to this is presenting your body as living sacrifice. Before you get the idea that this is just something that the Jews kind of went, whoa, wait a minute. That's what we do to lambs. That's what we do to rams. That's what we do to cattle. That's what we do to doves if we don't have enough money. You need to understand that in Rome, every corner you went around, there was another temple. And there was another set of priests. And another group of people that had an altar. Didn't look like that stack of stones. All their altars were very, very 
you know, ornate kind of place. Because it somehow or another that kind of gave them the idea that the God was greater. And usually the altar was right at the foot of a, of a statue, of an image. And what you laid on the altar was a gift to the God. And it might well be that, that before you went shopping in Rome, you came to a marketplace that was dedicated to this particular God who brings fertility and lets the crops produce and the animals be fruitful and multiply. And to, before you went into the market, you would, you would take something and you would put it on the altar. And so the Romans recognized this startling kind of nature to wait, whoa, hold on. I don't know about that. Eugene Peterson in the message paraphrases it this way and maybe helps us understand what Paul intended for us to hear when he said body. Take your everyday, ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, go to work, and walking around life. Take all that normal stuff. And put it before God as an offering. This isn't about necessarily the big huge decisions on life. You know, those momentous events. When I turned 16, there was nothing more important than getting that driver's license. It was a momentous moment. And I remember every minute of it. And I remember my parents saying to me, this, isn't, this is more about responsibility than it is freedom. Handed me keys. By the way, they didn't hand me keys to a car that I didn't pay for. They handed me keys to a car that I invested in. And in a very powerful way, Paul's trying to say, this isn't just about, oh, I come to church and I'll lay my life down. Oh, I get to this important stage in my life and I'll lay my life down. It is about every single day being perceived as an opportunity Am I going to live my life in the direction of just how much I can get ahead through my actions? Or am I going to live my life with a sense of I want it to be an offering to God? Jesus will teach about it. By the way, Jesus lived it. Amen? But I pull these particular words out from Luke chapter 22. Rather, the greatest among you must become like the youngest... The youngest doesn't make as much sense in our culture, but in their culture, elder and younger was very much a hierarchy. Must become the youngest, and the leader is the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? We know this answer. Yes? Is it not the one at the table who is greater? And Jesus says, but I, I have come. I have come among you as one who serves. How often did the disciples argue about who is the greatest? You know, every gospel has it. Somewhere in there, there's an argument the disciples have. And what makes me think is the, that when we read it in the different gospels, it almost always seems to be in a different setting, which means it kind of came up over and over again. didn't matter how many times Jesus said, I didn't come to be served, I came to serve. They still, it is so hard. To let our mind, our life, our core, and into our whole life be transformed into seeing it the way Jesus sees it. Such that we're always going back to that idea of, how can I get up on you? How can I be a little better? How can I have a little more sway? 
Instead, Jesus says, nope, it's about putting it out. And you know, it's very easy for us to look at the disciples and say, those idiots. And every time we point at the disciples and say, how did they not, or why did they do that, I think we have to look at ourselves and say, how often am I still playing the game of who is the greatest? Jesus will use that same language in the Gospels to transition it and point to the cross. I did not come to be served, but to serve. And that literally led into the idea of giving his life as a ransom for many. Mark and Matthew will quote it identically there. So you remember the story of Jesus in Luke chapter 2. He was 12 years old and it says, I believe the way it's stated is, is this is the first time that his family has gone back to Jerusalem for Passover. He's old enough now to participate in that, those kinds of things. The process of being in Jerusalem at Passover is to have a lamb, whether you brought it with you from home or you bought it there, and you take it into the temple courts. Whether Jesus got to go all the way in, we don't know. Hard to know with this many people how the logistics work, but you can be certain that from a distance he could smell what was going on on the altar in the temple. And more than likely, he would see, you could see, the priest taking the lamb, praying a blessing over it, and cutting its throat, putting it on the altar, and you're giving it back. I don't know about 12 Maybe just like this picture, it's a famous picture called Agnes Day, Lamb of God. At 12 years old, did they have the lamb, and they got ready to take it, and it was tied up, didn't make a sound. But the end of its life was coming, and it didn't know it. Jesus knew what was going to happen to the lamb. And as Jesus experienced this at 12 years old, and, it, and it's, it's, the gospel seem to indicate he's a regular visitor to Jerusalem for the festivals. John will have him there three times. Bef- twice before he's crucified. And each time he saw the lamb slain on the altar. And at some level had to say, that's my path. That's where I'm going. Because you see, before there was a resurrection, and it is so easy for us to forget, but before there was a resurrection, there was a cross. And sometimes when we take the Lord's Supper and we say, do this in remembrance of me, right? And we think somehow or another we can isolate our mind and think about the cross. And that that somehow or another is all that's being called for. These words have to confront us. They have to startle us. Because the idea of remembering the cross isn't just about a mind game of looking at what Jesus did. But when we take the bread and we take the cup, are we ready to lay our own lives down? Are we ready to be transformed from who we are as relatively selfish, kind of looking for our own gain kind of people to people who are freed in the process of being living sacrifices. I have three things that I want you to contemplate on in becoming sacrifice. These are intended to be 
practical. But maybe not in the way you're thinking. First of all, in conflicts with people, do you ever stop and try to look at another's point of view? Because see, in a, in a, in a, in a, in a conflict, one of the things we want to do in a conflict is win, isn't it? And, and I recognize there's truth and there's false, right? But the rest of the sentence is, aren't most of our conflicts not about things where there's just one truth and one false? Aren't they mostly about this is the way I see it and that's the way you see it? And I don't want to invest the time in looking at it from your perspective because I might not win the argument. And it may well be that God puts us in those conflict places not to win the argument, but to be transformed. And maybe transformation can't take place until we start seeing the argument, the conflict from the other person's perspective. Becoming sacrifice has to be about identifying the least, the loneliest, and the loser in our culture. And by the way, does anybody graduate high school and say, Whoo, I'm going to become the least. Woo! Has any graduation speech ever been about, Hey, I want you to go out there and become the most vulnerable group of people in the whole world. That's never what it's about. And yet, when we look at the people that Jesus ate with, who were they? When we look at the people that Jesus elevated, remember that woman who could only give a penny? He said, down there, and when he went to the well, it was the loneliest woman in town that he wanted to spend time with. Finally, becoming sacrifice is going to be making spiritual worship a matter of day-to-day not Sunday to Sunday. Amen? Can you find worship? It's been a long time since I've done this, so yeah, shoot. Can you find worship in changing a diaper? Can you find worship in cleaning the clothes? Can you find worship in cutting the lawn? Can you find worship in preparing Supper for those ungrateful people who don't even say thank you. Can you find worship in the simplest things in life because you have chosen in that act not to think about how big you are and how impressive you are and how powerful you are, but how much you can serve. Can that be worship for us? Um, We've sung these words so many times and we've listened to them so many times maybe they fall on deaf ears but God's good news always leads to the cross Jesus said take up your cross and follow me the good news is Jesus has taken those steps already amen he's not asking us to go somewhere that he hasn't but Jesus says if you want to follow me It will always lead from a cross, but it will always lead to God's transformation. Amen?
If you want to reply, respond to that, this message of laying down, of sacrifice, of not being pressed into the mold, but instead being free to be transformed, you're welcome to come during the song. You're welcome to engage in conversation with the people around you. Engage in conversation with those elders. Don't wait for them to call you. Call them. Call me. I want to talk. If you're online with us and would like to start that conversation, there's a text number on the screen, 979-217-3300. And you're welcome to start the conversation that way. But what I ask is that as we close today, as we sing this song, that you say, yes, Lord. Doesn't have to be yes to baptism. Doesn't have to be yes to coming forward to repent or ask for prayers or anything. But just yes, Lord, I want to step a little further away from conformity to the world to being transformed into your likeness. So wherever you are, come to God as we stand and sing. All to Jesus.